Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck, and I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find the church's website at www.fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. And we are talking today about clergy who no longer believe the doctrines of the church, clergy who are, in fact, atheists. Talking with me via Skype today from his home in Louisiana is the author of an upcoming book, uh, which will be released in June of 2013. The book title is Hope After Faith, An Ex-Pastor's Journey from Belief to Atheism. Uh, he is Jerry DeWitt. She, he became a non-believer after more than 25 years of Pentecostal ministry in his home state of Louisiana. His ministry experience began at the early age of 17 and included evangelizing across the United States and being the assistant pastor of two United Pentecostal churches as well as one apostolic church. During his dilemma with doubt, Jerry ultimately held the senior pastorate of two very unique congregations, one charismatic dominionist and the other non-denominational fundamentalist. Uh, Jerry was pastor in the town of DeRitter, Louisiana, and a fixture of the community. And he began to question his Pentecostal faith. And late one night uh, in 2011, a member of his flock called, seeking prayer for her brother, who'd been in a serious accident. As Jerry searched for the right words to console her, speech failed him, and he found that the faith which had once formed the cornerstone of his life finally crumbled to dust. Uh, when Jerry was eventually outed as an atheist, he found himself shunned by much of DeRitter's highly religious community, losing his job, his wife, and nearly everything he'd known. He has since become a leader and well-known speaker in America's fast-growing atheist movement. Hope After Faith, that is his upcoming book, tells the story of his life passage from a pastor with a deep Christian faith to a committed and considered atheism driven by humanism, a profound moral dimension, and the happiness and self-confidence obtained by living free of fear. Jerry also holds the distinction of being the first graduate of The Clergy Project, a private invitation-only safe house community of current and former ministers who no longer hold the supernatural beliefs of their religious traditions. The Clergy Project was started by evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins and former minister and author Dan Barker. Welcome, Jerry, to Religion for Life. Ah, it's a pleasure to be here. After hearing all of that, I feel kind of important. Oh, you are important. <laughs> <laughs> Again, welcome here. I, I, like you, am a member of the Clergy Project, but I haven't graduated yet. Uh, what do I need to do to get my degree? <laughs> well, I think you were fortunate enough to uh, to have the right denomination, and in particular the right congregation, that you may not need to graduate. Uh, I think you already came in with your degree. So uh, so we're all trying to be like you are. <laughs> so that, <laughs> but when it says you graduated, meaning you finally uh, outed yourself from an anonymity to full disclosure. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, it simply means that I was the first minister who came in to the clergy project in the ministry as a non-believing minister, and not only left the ministry, but also came out publicly about my non-belief. And so that's, it's a very, um, you know, glamorous title for a not-so-glamorous journey. 
And you're also the executive director of Freedom From Religion. What is that organization? No, it's Recovering From Religion. Oh, I'm sorry. It, yeah, that's okay. Everybody makes that mistake, and, and we, we gladly accept that mistake. We, we, we don't mind the association whatsoever. Um, Recovering From Religion, is uh, it has a very similar mission as the clergy project, except it's not limited to ministers. It's anyone who, has, who feels as if they have uh, accumulated some negative effects from the religious experience, and they're making their way out of religion. It's primarily made up of people who uh, completely understand that they do not believe the supernatural traditions of their religious experience, but some people are still wrestling with the effects. As I like to say, um, there's a lot of people in recovering from religion that would tell you they no longer believe in God, but they still go to bed every night afraid of going to hell. And that's what we're there for, is to help them make that transition out of the religious world into uh, the secular community. It's almost like a 12-step program, isn't it? It is very very much. That's right. It's very much uh, set up on the same dynamics as Alcoholics Anonymous. We have support groups, of course, like the Clergy Project. We also have uh, online forums. But we really specialize in those small groups where people who are just starting the journey can communicate with people who are miles and miles further along than they are. Jerry, tell us a little bit about your story. Um, You've been in the ministry for 25 years. How did did you get started into the ministry? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I was uh, I was brought up in a Pentecostal environment. My grandmother and grandfather were Pentecostals, and my grandmother in particular was the matriarch of our uh, family. And so I I really just grew up thinking that the whole world was uh, either Pentecostal or would one day be Pentecostal. That's that's all that I knew, and so it was it was kind of a given from the very beginning that I would at least become a faithful church member at some point in my life. And, you know, there was the hopes by a lot of different people that I would actually end up being in the ministry, which I did. And so very uh, eventfully, when I was 17, I ended up attending a service at Jimmy Swaggart's church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, before the scandals. And that's where I got saved and shortly after felt called to the ministry and eventually ended up back in the oneness Pentecostal denomination of my family, and the rest is history. I immediately went into the ministry. So uh, what was ministry like then? I mean, were you a a minister of a a congregation early on? I started off as an associate pastor. Uh, I assisted in our family's church and then began to evangelize. I got married whenever I was 20 and had my son whenever I was 22, and we evangelized the country for several years, and eventually I made my way into uh, other you know, associate p- pastor positions and eventually as senior pastor of two churches. And I had secular jobs all along the way, which has been very beneficial to me that I was actually building a resume that I didn't know I would later need. If you're just joining us, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck, and my guest is Jerry DeWitt. He's the author of the upcoming book, Hope After Faith, An Ex-Pastor's Journey from Belief to Atheism. And he's uh, on my program talking about his transition from belief to unbelief. Tell us a little bit then, Jerry, about about how that all came about. Uh, how, how did you uh, come to start to doubt uh, the doctrines of your church? You know, the... The, the true doubt came very late in my story. Um, 
I, I would say the first real step of doubting was simply doubting the Pentecostal doctrine. Uh, people have heard me tell the story now many, many times, but it's important. What I did differently than I think some ministers may do is I really took this issue of eternal punishment very seriously, and I took the issue of hell very seriously. I feel like I was a lover of both truth and a lover of humanity, almost on equal uh, portions, almost in equal measures from the very beginning. So when I when it became my responsibility to stand up and tell people that I loved so dearly that if they bobbled or missed a step in their Pentecostal devotion, that they would then suffer in hell eternally. I loved them enough, and I loved truth enough to try to get to the bottom of that. So from the very beginning, almost at age 17, maybe maybe in my early 20s, even more so, I began to really dig into this idea about eternal punishment. And so once you, once you begin to make a break of that magnitude from the traditions of your childhood, you're well on your way. Um, you know, you, you, you've already started and plotted a course that's going to take you in a direction that you may not ultimately want to end up going if it's your desire to stay in the ministry and in particular to stay in that denomination. So it was the doctrine of hell that you first started to reconsider, and that doctrine is, is critically important within the tradition. I, maybe that's uh, an obvious thing that we're not stating so clearly. Uh, some denominations may, you know, give or take it, but for you and for your denomination, that's really a centerpiece. It's really a centerpiece, and, and it is in many ways uh, the driving force. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, all the Pentecostals of the world, they live in the 21st century, just like the rest of us, and they live in the more civilized culture that we all live in and have developed. So if you back them into a corner, obviously they're going to say that this is about God loving everyone, this is about uh, Christ's sacrifice, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. They're, they're going to say that because that's what is expected and almost required within our civilized version of Christianity that exists today. But in practice, particularly in Pentecostalism, in practice, it's really about judgment, and it's really about um, works and legalism and trying to uh, be completely pure of sin. You know, you talk about works. That's interesting because uh, in, in your uh, in one of the videos, uh, I think, and in also in the article in the New York Times, uh, you talked about um, praying and how important it is that that prayer. Uh, I think actually does stuff, right? It makes stuff yes. happen within the Pentecostal right. tradition. It isn't just about comforting the person from anxiety. It's about actually healing an illness, and there's kind of a, a sense in how well, I suppose, a minister performs. Is that is that true, or is that overstating? Absolutely. No, that's not overstating at all. And all you have to do to know that that is true is turn on Christian television. Um, that That's that's where you see the people who make it the furthest as far as the charismatic slash Pentecostal movement is concerned on Christian television are the ones who have the best supposed track record, the ones who have the most trophies in their trophy cabinet. So it, it really is about obtaining something. Now, don't get me wrong. This cognitive 
you know, dissonance and disconnect obviously still exist where a person can pray and not receive what they're praying for, they can back up and say, well, your will be done. God works in mysterious ways. You know, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. Mm -hmm. They can back up and protect themselves that way. But that's not how the process starts, and that's not the methodology. And so that eventually you came to the point where you're in the pulpit and and the disconnect between what you're feeling inside, what you're thinking, your love for humanity and your love for truth is coming in conflict with what uh, the pulpit requires of you. Right. I, I feel like over the course of 25 years that I tried every angle that I could to not only stay in Christianity, but to also stay a minister. As I like to say, I mean, I, I came out of the ministry kicking and screaming. I didn't know that there was another way to live. I knew that I could, unlike other people in the clergy project, I knew that I could make a living doing other things, but I didn't know how I could have a life doing other things. Mm -hmm. So truly, over 25 years, I tried it from every angle that I could try it. And uh, and I'm and you thought I'm sure you considered kind of liberal forms of religion or maybe starting your own Pentecostals for humanists or something like that. But <laughs> absolutely, yeah. As a matter of fact, the last church that I pastored, um, the first reason that I was attracted to it was because the name of the church was First Community Church of DeRitter, and I was all about community at that point. That's 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 to where I had gotten that I was more about community than I was about fundamental, you know, Christian doctrine. It was about serving the community with a quote-unquote Christ-like spirit. And so I was attracted to that particular church. The other reason I was attracted to it is because they were not Pentecostals or Charismatics. They actually had left the local Presbyterian church and started mm. their own independent church. And so I felt like that it would have been far enough out of the the fundamental mainstream um, flavor of Christianity that is so pronounced here in our community that I could be comfortable there and I could have a liberal version of Christianity, but that did not end up being the case. <laughs> and then you continued work uh, in your home community, but that's it was really then, as as I understand your the uh, article in the New York Times, uh, it was your secular job that actually got you in trouble, or or, or your yeah. atheism got you in trouble with a secular job, not your ministry. John. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, when I when I tell people I got fired December the first, um, they they're very you know they look at me like duh you know I mean of course you did but that's because they think I got fired from a ministry. I was actually fired from a secular job. That's how um, integrated religion is inside of our little community. I'm I'm from Derrida, Louisiana, and we have 10,000 residents. Our entire parish is only about 40,000. So almost everyone knows almost everyone else. So I was a minister to everyone who knew me. Even though I had a secular job, the first question people would ask me when they would run into me for the first time in a long time is they'd say, where are you preaching now? Hmm. And, and so... That's why I say that I had to commit identity suicide. I had to come out publicly in a way to uh, that would completely strip me from this minister's identity, and and you know that's that's one of the reasons that I came out as publicly as I did. If if not, then for the rest of my life there would be this expectation 
placed upon me that I knew I was no longer willing to make. And this came at a great cost to you, didn't it? It has come at a huge cost. And in, in my in my preacher way, uh, you know, I call it the four F's, you know, that it, of course, it, of course, cost finances and it cost favor in the community and it cost friendships. And most importantly, it cost family. Jerry DeWitt is my guest. He's the author of the upcoming Hope After Faith, an ex-pastor's journey from belief to atheism. He's also the executive director of Recovering from Religion, recoveringfromreligion.org, and a participant in the Clergy Project. He now uh, goes around the country and speaks uh, to various conferences about his journey. Uh, You call it a graduating from faith rather than a loss of faith. Tell us about that. Yes. Yeah, I, I don't feel like I lost anything outside of the, the four F's that I just mentioned, I don't feel like I've lost anything. I feel like that this has been one long continual journey for me and that I've been moving towards clear and clear understandings of the truth and that I've been moving closer and closer to a opportunity to serve humanity in a very pure and very honest way. So I don't I don't feel like, you know, some people will say, well, he lost his faith. I, I don't feel like I lost my faith. I feel like I graduated from my religion. And of course, what's always important, and you know this as well as I do, people are going to say, well, that was the problem. Jerry was involved in religion. If he would have had relationship instead of religion, then he wouldn't be in this mess. I dare people to go to De Quincey, Louisiana, to Grace of De Quincey, where I pastored, and ask them for CDs of my messages. I was preaching relationship before relationship was cool. And so, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, it's uh, it, that's that's not, you know, that's not the issue. The oh, issue uh, is about truth and well, about loving yeah. people. Yeah, and I think that really is a big part of it, because uh, uh, I know the Presbyterian layman uh, included me in the article about uh, when the clergy project was just getting going, when Daniel Dennett and Linda Lascola were writing their uh, articles. And and so the idea, in fact, my blog response at that time, and I think it echoes this, was that it isn't the fault of the individual clergy. We're kind of the first casualties of a whole shift, of a whole movement um, uh, in in our culture of everything, of religion changing and the resistance to that. That's right. That, that, that's exactly right. And, and, and I like the way you call it that, you know, we're the first casualties of it. We have people within the clergy project that would already uh, be living a different life if, if they could financially take care of their families some other way, if, if they receive some other type of employment. And people think that's very materialistic, that's shallow. But whenever you're 40 or 50 years old and you have a spouse that is dependent upon hospitalization, dependent upon some form of medication, literally to keep them alive, to keep them functioning, as the minister, you, it, it's, it's, it's a mountain. It is truly a mountain that you are trying to overcome to say, being honest is more important than my spouse's life. That's mm. that's an incredible thing to ask of someone. And so the Clergy Project and, of course, other organizations are working very hard to try to help these ministers receive employment and to uh, to be able to move out and not be as much of a casualty as, as some of us have been. 
uh, just this morning as we are recording this interview, I had coffee with uh, one of the clergy of the Clergy Project who uh, goes by the name of Adam. That isn't his real name, but he lives here in the Tri-Cities of East Tennessee, pastoring uh, as, as part of a staff of a large uh, evangelical church. And so his story is is is, is local and ever-present. I think the it's, it's almost the tip of an iceberg, isn't it? It is a tip of an iceberg, and and all Adam is waiting for is someone in you know in that area to just step forward and and give him a good job, offer him a good opportunity. If 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 a person knows anything about a minister, a successful minister such as Adam, then they then they know these people come to the job with a huge set of skills and abilities. It's one thing to ask a person to change their mind which we obviously are always asking doubters to do. It's another thing to ask them to change their life, and that's what comes with it. And so Adam's a good example of just being one good job away from having a changed life. Well, uh, tell me about uh, your definition of religion. I, I sometimes I find that I find that uh, word. I, my my program's called Religion for Life. I mean, one might have a positive uh, notion of it. You, you mentioned recovery from religion. Do you mean all kinds of religion, religion itself, or a certain <laughs> kind of religion? Yeah, that just the name recovering from religion gets me in trouble, probably more than anything. Um, when when I'm thinking about religion or talking about religion in particular, to recovering from religion, I'm referring to to worldviews that involve a more uh, fundamentalistic outlook towards Christianity. I'm probably not thinking at all about liberal Christianity. I know that there's an argument to be made that moderate and liberal Christianity in some ways indirectly support the more fundamental views of Christianity, and, and, and I appreciate that. But for me, what I'm really trying to deal with is I'm trying to deal with the fact that in the 21st century, we have human beings that are only going to live life once, that are feeling compelled to not be themselves, to not express their individuality. And the reason they're being compelled to do this is because of some text that is held as sacred, some man that is seen as being special, and some imaginary concepts that are touted as being divine. And so that's really what I'm working if I'm working against anything, and I don't feel like I'm, I'm an against person. I feel like I'm a, a positive and, and far person. But if I were working against anything, it would be this idea of imposing these concepts and regulations and, and ideas upon people, limiting their self-expression. So I'm truly a humanist first and foremost. And I, I kind of wonder if it's possible in the 21st century, I'm just kind of wondering off the top of my head, if it is possible to create our religious and religious communities, or maybe we don't even use the word religious, and I'm fine with that too, but communities that uh, invoke and evoke uh, self-expression, that uh, take science seriously, and then that talk about the human project of doing good and doing justice, that uh, without uh, supernaturalism or concern about going to hell or, or, or uh, any of those other kinds of things. Yes, I, I think it not only that it is possible, I think it's happening. I think we compare ourselves to 2,000-year-old religious institutions, and when we do that, we feel like, I think we feel like we're coming up shorter than what we really are. I think that the secular groups 
that exist all across the world, and in particular the ones I've been exposed to in the United States, they are forming communities that in many ways serve the same purposes that churches serve. And, of course, that immediately gives the theist the argument, well, you're just in another religion. And that just justifies, once again, clarifying what is and is not a religion and what it is about religion that you're actually against. The enemy are the chains and fetters that are created by imaginary purposes and imaginary principles. That's what we're fighting against when we talk about religion. So I think, just to simply answer your question, not only can we do that, I think it is happening. And it's, it's probably happening, you know, with you and, and the purposes that you serve within your own community. So, Jerry DeWitt, my guest, the author of the upcoming book, uh, Hope After Faith, an ex-pastor's journey from belief to atheism. And now you have uh, an upcoming book. You're featured in the New York Times, Do you? and you have an incredible gift for speaking and for ministry and for care. Do you, do you, do you see that you'll be using—and maybe gift is a religious word, I don't know—but do you think you'll be using these skills uh, in some way now? Where, where, where do you see your future going? Well, I, I, I consider myself a minister. You know, I guess maybe that's mm-hmm. one reason I have to dance around all the religious terminologies, because I truly do consider myself a minister. And I, for a lack of better words, I pastor every day through email, through phone calls, through Facebook. There are people that I'm counseling with on a regular basis. I consider myself to be some some form of a coach or a mentor, which in the religious world we would have called a pastor. So I'm still ministering. I'm enjoying the writing process. I'm enjoying expressing myself through the written word as much as I do through the spoken word. And so I continue to, you know, it's my my vision to continue to write books and to continue to minister. Jerry DeWitt, my guest, I have one final question for you, Jerry. What uh, What's the takeaway? What What do you hope that people will see? Yeah, what I what I hope that people see, not just from this interview, but from my life and what I plan on doing for the rest of my life, and in particular what I've done over the course of the last year, I hope that people get, once again, a deeper appreciation for what it means to be gifted with this life, to have this opportunity to be on this beautiful planet and to experience this roller coaster that we call life. And I hope that people will be encouraged if they see this, you know, this short, you know, sickly, cowardly guy in Derrida, Louisiana, literally standing up against everything he's ever known and losing almost everything he's ever loved in order to express himself more clearly, I hope they walk away and say, if I can do that, if, if, if Jerry DeWitt can do that, then I can do that. And there must be a very important reason to do that. Jerry DeWitt, my guest on Religion for Life, the author of the upcoming, uh, released in June, you can pre-order it now, uh, book, Hope After Faith, An Ex-Pastor's Journey from Belief to Atheism. Jerry, thank you for being with me today, and thank you most of all for your work in uh, living the truth. I have great admiration for you. Thank you, sir, and you keep up the good work as well. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. More information about me, John Shuck, and my congregation can be found at fpcelizabethton.org. You can find links to the New York Times articles as well as YouTube videos uh, produced by Jerry DeWitt. 
at my website, religionforlife.com. Also there, you'll find links to podcasts, articles, sermons, information about upcoming shows. That's religionforlife.com. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.